Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, I'm speaking with my colleague, Liesl Lovaldrin. Liesl is Crisis Group's senior advisor on the African Union, and just like she did last year, she's here to talk to us about what happened this year at the annual African Union Summit, when all or nearly all heads of state on the continent arrive in Addis Ababa. Liesl, thanks for coming back on the show, and I'm looking forward to hearing your analysis of the summit. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for having me. So you've had a busy week in Addis Ababa, and I'll just put in a quick note to listeners here. We are recording this on Monday, February 19th. And Liesl, I understand that the summit just concluded a couple of hours ago after a bit of an all-night affair. Uh, Can you tell me a bit about why that was? Yes, there were many delays in the start of the summit on Saturday morning. Also, you know, the opening session started quite late. There were many meetings at the level of heads of state outside of the actual plenary, you know, so that that was also a delay. But I think for now, we can say that the summit really attempted to focus on conflict There were many discussions around uh, specifically the DRC, which, you know, we, you and I can speak about. Obviously, a lot of focus on Palestine, on the, on the Gaza crisis, Israel's attacks on civilians in Gaza. You had the Secretary General of the League of Arab States here, the Prime Minister of Palestine. So apart from African conflicts, the focus here, you know, was also a lot on Gaza, and then we had Lula da Silva, who spoke about uh, the G20 presidency of Brazil is around alleviating poverty. So many big issues addressed. And then, as as, as you said, there was this very long meeting around some of the things that are on the table of the African Union institutional issues that they have to deal with now at the summit. So let's start with our bread and butter of sorts, which is the conflicts that are top of the agenda right now. And I understand the conflict uh, in the Great Lakes in eastern Congo uh, specifically was perhaps the most active uh, file during the summit, um, including a meeting between the Congolese and Rwandan presidents uh, directly. So yeah, tell us about what what happened to try to de-escalate the crisis in eastern Congo. Yes, it was basically the president of Angola, um, President Lorenzo, who called this mini-summit on Friday evening, this meeting of then President Kagame, President Chisekedi, President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa was in the room. South Africa is now leading a new SADC deployment in Eastern DRC. And uh, William Ruto was there, the president of Kenya, because Kenya also led a military deployment of the East African community, which withdrew over December. So this was quite significant. The chairperson of the African Union Commission, Musafaki Mohammed, was in the room, uh, the commissioner for political affairs, peace and security. But... Having them all in the room doesn't mean that there were, you know, direct dialogue between President Chesakedi and Kagame. Um, in fact, there was no um, statement or outcome from that mini-summit on Friday evening. Then there were bilateral meetings between President Lorenzo and and the leaders of, of the DRC and Rwanda. There were some other discussions on a very high level, President Cyril Ramaphosa, Chesekedi, and then the president of Burundi, um, President Ndai Shimye, who met. Um, so a, a lot of meetings, but 
no real new solutions, no no agreements were reached here at this uh, at this summit. From the Angolans' um, side, they have said that it would continue in Luanda. They they really did try hard to get discussions going, but probably um, what one would need is more. Uh, behind the scenes, closed door discussions at another level between all the leaders and stakeholders in the Great Lakes, you know. But it's not as if the the leaders didn't try here at the summit. So, of course, an, an opportunity every year at the summit to, to get heads of state themselves to meet when otherwise it would be quite difficult. Uh, the other major point of drama, you know, much closer to home for this podcast, I would say given that we've devoted the last couple episodes to it, uh, is the MOU between Ethiopia and Somaliland, and therefore the rising tension between Ethiopia and Somalia. Prime Minister Abiy and uh, Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud have not really met and talked directly uh, since this crisis broke out, to our knowledge. Um, there was some drama involving President Hassan Sheikh getting to the summit and some counter accusations about that. Can you tell us about that? Yes, that was really a very serious uh, diplomatic incident. So the president of Somalia, Sheikh Mohammed, accuses the Ethiopian government of basically blocking him from attending the summit. Uh, he says that, first of all, they blocked, the security blocked him from leaving his hotel. Then getting into the summit, he went with uh, uh, the president of Djibouti, Omar Gele, into uh, the summit and they were blocked. This is the version that he gave and he gave a press conference inside the African Union, uh, you know, headquarters once he was in there complaining uh, bitterly, you know, accusing the Ethiopians, accusing President, uh, the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed uh, of not respecting the the fact that Ethiopia is the host of the African Union and that certain rules should apply and that everybody should be allowed, etc., from the Ethiopian side, we hear different uh, things. Uh, they uh, deny that he was blocked access. Uh, and the official version is that he had his own security with him and, and they were armed and the Ethiopian security at the, at the summit objected to that and that it was actually not political and that he was allowed in. But he left the summit early, um, Hassan Sheikh, uh, and so one could say, you know, uh, this issue is is uh, has almost escalated, and that um, the relations between Somalia and Ethiopia is is on a on an all time low. Yeah, quite the uh, quite the marker that the crisis has perhaps escalated rather than de-escalated after the summit. Y- yet another. Uh, a complex issue for the AU to to navigate previously and and still it was Ethiopia's internal sort of instability that you know put it in a very awkward position and now you have and now you have an accusation that Ethiopia is is using its its host capacity to sort of put the put put the thumb on the scale so to speak on this issue as well uh yeah so so something i guess to to watch moving ahead and thanks for that update on Sudan obviously it's been a huge focus of ours going into the summit there's been Lots of criticism that the AU has not done more to lean forward and resolve the crisis in Sudan. They did just appoint this new high-level panel. But yes, did we see much movement on the Sudan front, anything major to come out of it? 
No, unfortunately, and I must say it's a huge disappointment that there weren't any high-level meetings around Sudan, not even at the level of ministers. Um, there were, you know, the panel met with the UN envoy. There might have been behind the scenes some some other uh, meetings, you know, uh, the US envoy for the Horn of Africa was here, but none of it really reflected any of the urgency of this crisis. And, uh, you know, in our eight priorities for the African Union for 2024, that was the top priority. Uh, the war is raging on. It's absolutely crucial for, you know, the mediators to have one mediation track. Uh, and the African Union just seemed to now, uh, you know, um, I, I don't want to say wash its hands of it, but but admit that it's not playing any major role uh, in uh, trying to solve the crisis in Sudan. In all the speeches, of, co of course, there's, there's mention, there's uh, expression of, you know, outrage at this war going on, the destruction of, of Sudan. But honestly, um, one really would have liked to see at least some of the 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 actors here, okay, the advisors were here. We yeah, they were meeting at hotels and so on, um, but 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 really uh, no high level action. Um, one has to say that you know, for example, Egypt's president um, Al Sisi. I didn't see him here. No, so I mean, obviously, the belligerents uh, in in Sudan weren't here. Um, but they might, you know, you might have been able to use the opportunity to get the other EGAD leaders together um, and and at least have discussions with the African Union uh, Commission to to try and see how they could move forward with this, uh, with the mediation and the new panel that was appointed, led by, um, you know, the former UN envoy, he's the chair of the African Union's Silencing the Guns Initiative, Mohamed Ibn Chambas has been appointed. So, uh, you know, as we say in our priorities, he must now um, start working and there must be some movement. But I think that's probably the big disappointment of this summit. Yet another missed opportunity on Sudan. How should we interpret the fact that the AU did finally appoint this high-level panel, but then at the African Union summit, that didn't seem to lead to any forward momentum on the AU taking a more tangible uh, leading role on trying to resolve the crisis. Yes, it doesn't show much support, actually, for the panel. It's not making it really very easy for the panel to now at, uh, engage and really try and weigh in on, on this crisis. So, I mean, we know that there are so many other actors involved the the Jeddah process between the U.S. Uh, Saudi Arabia is trying to uh, mediate. We know the UAE, as I said, Egypt wasn't. Um, I mean, uh, the president Al Sisi wasn't at the summit, so um, we know that the AU feels that it's too, in a sense, undermined and that it doesn't really have uh, the leverage uh, on the crisis in Sudan, but. Um, you know, it should actually step up to the plate, as as we say, and and take the floor. Musafaki Mohammed, uh, the chairperson of the commission, complained a lot about, uh, you know, him not getting the power to to lead, and that um, institutionally, 
he doesn't have the mandate to lead on these issues. I mean, he also talked about the issue of subsidiarity, which means that regional blocs like IGAD um, should act when there's a crisis in their region. But he said that subsidiarity shouldn't be substitution. The African Union is still the continental organization that needs to deal with peace and security, especially in a crisis like Sudan, you know, where you have not only EGAD involved, but uh, many other African states. All right. Uh, we could <laughs> we could talk more about all that finger pointing, but we have many other issues to, to go over. So quickly on South Sudan, which also made our priorities list, they are scheduled for elections at the end of this year, although many of us expect that there will be a further delay. But we hope to see at least some, you know, preventative diplomacy, so to speak, on South Sudan, because it's 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 not a crisis that should be sneaking up on anyone. Um, did we see any activity on that front? Yes, there was a meeting of the C5 countries that are member states that have been leading the process in uh, South Sudan, the, the African Union's engagement in South Sudan. The South African minister, Naledi Pando, chaired that meeting. They expressed their support for the South Sudanese in going to, forward to elections called on the AU Commission to provide technical support, also have the constitution-making process move forward. As you said, and I mean, as we wrote in the eight priorities, many of these things are really uh, not on track. So elections might be delayed again, but there seems to be at least, you could say, more action on South Sudan from the side of the African Union than there is on, on Sudan even. The uh, chairperson of the, com- uh, of the Commission for Political Affairs, Peace and Security, the commissioner traveled to South Sudan very recently. South Africa as a country has also been very involved um, leading the C5. You know, we saw many visits also from high-level South African individuals. You had the High Commissioner in London, Kingsley Mamabolo, that was just there. So South Africa on its side is helping to provide some technical support. And then at the same time, the African Union putting its efforts. It's difficult for the for the African Union. There's only, you know, one commissioner for peace and security, and there are so many priorities. But at least you could say on this one, on South Sudan, there seems to be a real effort to to help South Sudan and to stay engaged. And then just finally on that, I've attended many African Union summits at the time when um, it was really urgent also to get Rik Mashar and Salva Kiir, the current president, together. And there was so much shuttle diplomacy um, organized by the African Union and heads of state to get the two to agree, you know, on uh, the 2018 agreement. So it's good that the African Union stay engaged. And it's a good example of what they can do in in other crises uh, elsewhere on the continent. So it, it does seem like the C5 model that the AU has on South Sudan with one powerful member state in particular tasked with sort of leading the African Union response, uh, in this case, South Africa, who, whose engagement has ebbed and flowed. But we have seen South Africa step up as a major political broker at several important junctures. Given that there's only one peace and security commissioner, this this does seem like an interesting model if you if you can find a willing member state to take it on. 
No, I agree. I agree. That is definitely something that, you know, we could look forward to. Um, and maybe we could talk a little bit about the Sahel as well afterwards, because uh, we do get a sense that maybe the new AU chairperson uh, who's re- from Mauritania, President Ghazwani, could, because he's in the Sahel and he knows this crisis very well, could maybe lead on that. So, I mean... There are so many crises. So if a head of state or or the the acting chair can weigh in on one crisis, you know that's that's already better than nothing. I would say another topic that uh, we've had you on uh, as well as others uh, recently to talk about is, of course, the a string of coups in West Africa and the Sahel, and the related issue of democratic backsliding. Did much come from the summit on that issue? Yes, I think. Um, at the summit itself and on the sidelines at all the side meetings and events, uh, there was a sense of great concern that, as Musa Fakim Muhammad uh, said, the pillars of the African Union, that are the regional economic communities, seem to be under threat, specifically meaning ECOWAS, three of its members, um, have now broken away from ECOWAS, the three countries that are sanctioned due to military takeovers, Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger. You know, when are they going to perhaps break away from the African Union? And and at what cost? Because we see, as, we, uh, as we've also written, uh, in the past it seemed as if uh, there was a, a cost for countries when they are suspended from the African Union. Their traditional partners turned their backs on these countries. They got no more, you know, aid from, let's say, Europe or other Western partners. Now these countries don't seem to be bothered so much. They can turn to Russia and others for for all the support that they that they now want. Um, and that is, you know, that is a real concern that they really don't seem to care much about suspension from the African Union. The response is to say, well, you know, we have zero tolerance for coup d'etats. The Peace and Security Commissioner again yesterday listed all the the Protocol on Peace and Security, the AU Constitutive Act, the Lome Convention, all these um, sort of documents and agreements of the African Union that uh, make sure that the the members of the African Union are all elected. He said democratically elected. I mean, that is debatable whether all the members of the all the heads of state of the African Union are democratically elected but you know that's a whole other story but there seems to be the sense that the AU should hold firm um, continue engaging with those countries on trying to nudge them towards having elections which now you know it's at least for those three countries that I mentioned it doesn't seem to be really something that they feel is is an immediate urgency they have really dire security problems in the Sahel with um, uh, jihadism uh, in in all those countries. But, for example, a country like Gabon, um, the African Union has more leverage there than to, uh, to say, okay, here's the Loma Convention, you've been suspended, you now need to have elections. But it is certainly something, you know, that's that's disturbing if countries are just going to say, oh, well, you know, we don't care about the 
African Union's Charter on Democracy, Governance and Elections. Um, the African Union is, uh, as I've said, I think, yeah, and, and many places, is an intergovernmental organization. It doesn't have any powers to impose itself on on states. Uh, so, you know, it has its, its uh, documents. It can suspend countries, but it can't really do much more to to make them have better governance. Because what we say is, if you're going to have fraudulent elections, and if you're going to plunge your country into crisis, and if there's going to be bad governance, sure, there's a risk of military coups. So rather prevent the coups by adhering to free and fair elections, and the African Union should step up and say, these elections were not free and fair, you know, have a re- have a rerun. But... Um, but that is not happening, and the African Union doesn't have the power to impose um, this kind of good governance on on its member states, unfortunately. Okay, so pivoting a bit, uh, we very much focused on internal uh, peace and security issues uh, on the African continent, but there is a lot at the African Union Summit that's much more globally oriented, tracking a lot of the the themes that we've been talking about for several years on this podcast uh, in terms of the shifting geopolitical order and Africa's place in it. Gaza and the crisis in Gaza was, you know, near the top of the agenda in a certain way. The Prime Minister of Palestine was there. I guess it might surprise listeners to find out that the war in Gaza was 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 so high on an African Union summit. Uh, why? Yes, it's a long-standing issue for the African Union. I mean, since it's uh, its founding and since the days of the OAU, it's written in the AU Constitutive Act um, to to support uh, the Palestinians, to support a uh, Palestinian state. Well, they, this, this was reconfirmed in all the speeches here. So it's nothing new, I would say. And also at almost every African Union summit, you had Mahmoud Abbas, you had other Palestinian leaders speak. Um, if, if no, no one, if there were no other guests, it would, uh, there would be always, you know, someone from Palestine. So, of course, now the situation has completely escalated uh, to boiling point. All the uh, the speeches, I mean, um, Musafaki Muhammad, I think, spoke about the extermination of the Palestinians, uh, many of the other speakers as well. And also in the closed sessions, one can imagine, you know, South Africa, because South Africa's minister, Naledi Pandor, has been so vocal here at the summit, um, and also speaking, of course, uh, of um, South Africa's case at the ICJ, that um, uh, the, many of the countries are supporting. There are African uh, member states that have good relations with Israel. C- countries like Rwanda, or the DRC, or Togo have in the past, you know, said we must have an Africa-Israel summit. Um, you, you, there, there are some of them that we now have good trade relations, but uh, we heard nothing of that at the summit. There was no dissent, I would say. It would just be too politically risky for a member state to stand up and say, okay, we, we support Israel. Um, Israel is the victim here. This is definitely something that um, I think brings the continent together in a sense. Mm. And given the levels of internal dissent uh, in Western countries and controversy over over Gaza, perhaps missed was that this has become in many ways yet another global South, global North 
fault line if we <laughs> as if we as if we needed another one absolutely absolutely and you know um our last summit in 2020 early 2023 you and i spoke about the ukraine crisis and how african countries uh, were very divided in their votes at the UN General Assembly. Many countries were accused of being pro-Russian when they were saying they are non-aligned. But then over the course of these last couple of months, uh, at least the first half, uh, three quarters of 2023, there was a kind of warming of relations, you know, focus on other issues between the African Union and then the European Union. But then uh, when uh, Gaza broke out and you saw European states and some, you know, like the European Union not condemning Israel, some supporting Israel, this division in the EU specifically, and then the US um, with its military support to Israel, that I think we're back to square one. The West is being accused of double standards, talking about international, respecting international law when it comes to Ukraine, the plight of civilians, and here they are supporting these uh, atrocities and attacks on civilians in Gaza. So um, relations between uh, Africa and Europe is definitely, again, at a low. And, I mean, it was interesting at the summit that Lula da Silva was the only, apart from uh, the League of Arab States, the Prime Minister of Palestine, he was the only other invited guest to speak at the podium. Um, and so that's a global south, you know, um, being here in full force, talking about the unfair international financial institutions, debt, uh, all these issues, the G20, that really Africa's voice and the global south's voice should be heard um, when it comes to the reform of the UN Security Council. So there's been a shift over the last decade, I would say, towards African Union in more solidarity with other leaders of the Global South. And now, of course, the African Union is a member of the G20 uh, since uh, September 2023. Um, so that's a big, big thing for the African Union now to tackle how the African Union is going to do it, African common positions, what's going to be Africa's position, who's going to be Africa's voice in the G20. It's interesting. I feel like, I, from what I recall, our conversation last year was very much about Western countries, you know, uh, using the summit to, to really increase their courtship of the AU. But it sounds like, you know, in this case, it was very much, uh, much more of a global South affair. And then you still have this very awkward split screen of the Munich Security Conference going on basically at the same time, at the same week as the African Union Summit. And of course, uh, Many of the you know Western countries and diplomats are, are very focused on that. Issues like Ukraine, very front and center there. A bit strange, given that there's 52 weeks <laughs> out of the year that they can't manage to, to, to split those up at all. And then I understand that um, the UN Secretary General Guterres was planning to make it, but, but didn't manage to make it either. Yes, that was really also a big disappointment, because usually... That's also a highlight of an IU summit. You know, the UN Secretary General um, speaks, has press conferences, um, you know, speaks about peace and security on the African continent, about the role of the UN. Of course, now 
there are many issues to be discussed. The withdrawal of big UN peacekeeping missions from Mali, from the DRC. In December, we saw a new UN resolution to uh, um, ensure on a case-by-case -case basis the support from UN assessed contributions for African Union peace support operations. So funding, uh, more funding from the UN for African Union missions, which is supposed to be then more uh, effective, more cost-effective. And so the absence of Guterres at the summit was really unfortunate. So we're going to shift towards the more inward-looking questions for the African Union. Uh, one of the major storylines coming into the summit was which country will chair the AU this year. Comoros served as chair this past year, and it's safe to say Comoros is not a powerful member state, to say the least. Recently, South Africa, Senegal served as AU chairs, uh, so we've seen the split screen of what having a powerful member state in this role looks like versus not. So, so which country emerged as the new chair for this year? Yes, uh, it is an important position. It's just for one year, but... The uh, the unfortunate situation is that sometimes regions like North Africa, it was their turn this year, are just at loggerheads and there was a stalemate between Morocco and Algeria. Egypt chair, chaired the AU in 2019. So, um, you know, even though Egypt might have been available, um, it really wasn't its turn to chair again in such a short time. But ideally, you need a powerful member state with a institutional capacity behind it. A big embassy here in Addis, an embassy in New York, uh, ideally, uh, because chairing the African Union for a year means you are going to set the agenda, chair all the meetings of the African Union member states. Um, and and it's, a, it's an important role. And then if member states can't agree and they go for uh, a weak state, uh, it really undermines, I would say, some of the things the African Union wants to do. Maybe not even because of the individual leading, but because just it's it's a country that people are not listening to. We saw with the crisis in Sudan, the chairperson from the Comores, as you say, uh, as you say, Azali, he traveled, he tried to meet the belligerents, but people were just saying, well, you know, you're, you're a small island. Um, people just, unfortunately, just didn't listen to him, and no matter how, how hard he tried. So this year, we have the president, Ghazwani, um, from Mauritania chairing. And Mauritania actually only heard about two weeks before the summit that, okay, they are now chairing. Usually you should know six months ahead of time to prepare for this important job. Fortunately for 2025, we know um, Angola uh, is Southern Africa's candidate. It's now been listed as deputy chair on the bureau. Um, and so Angola has got literally a year to prepare. Positive thing we could say about Mauritania chairing is that Mauritania has fairly good relations, good relations with uh, with the EU. Um, it's a state that has got a good track record in the fight against um, terrorism. Uh, it's, a, it's a state in the Sahel that could perhaps uh, be sort of a, a mediator or play a role with these uh, countries that have now left uh, ECOWAS and have created their own 
sort of union in the estates of the Sahel. Um, uh, he, he, Ghazwani, when he spoke, um, I remarked that he was very sort of conciliatory. He spoke about the crisis in the Sahel and these countries that have been suspended. He did say, you know, we should uphold uh, sort of the Loma Convention, but he said that um, he supported democracy, dialogues. Um, he 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 really, I think, could with the, with the support be be a positive influence in in the Sahel. But you know, beyond that, you really need institutional capacity as the chair uh, of the African Union. And we also had uh, President Ruto taking over from President Kagame on spearheading efforts at AU reform. Have there been any AU reforms under this process? And, and what can we expect? Yes, there were definitely reforms since um, President Paul Kagame took the, over this role. For example, you know, we had eight uh, commissions at the AU now and are trying to streamline them a bit and bit more focus. There's now one commission for political affairs, peace and security, while there were two in the past. That has created uh, some problems because, uh, you know, of staffing, there's now being a too big commission. Um, there's some teething problems with that that needs to be sorted out. Um, so there have been institutional changes that in some instances I think is progress. Also on the elections of commissioners on a more merit-based um, foundation, Part of the reforms was, for example, getting the peace fund going. Uh, that has, has been quite a success. There's almost $400 million in the AU peace fund. But there's a lot that still needs to be done. I mean, the AU is now just over 20 years old. And as we go along, you know, um, tinkering with the infrastructure, the institutional infrastructure of the AU, we see what works and doesn't work. For example... As I said, Musafaki Mahmoud complained bitterly about, you know, his role and that he doesn't have a mandate and the powers to really do something and make strategic impact, as he said. Now, um, member states have always pushed back against this, but ideally he, as the chairperson of the commission, should be able to appoint the commissioners they, that they work for him and they're not just, you know, doing their own thing and um, not having that buy-in, I would say, perhaps, into the strategic direction then of the commission chairman. So that is one thing that uh, Ruto going forward could fix uh, the kind of hierarchy of the African Union. And there are many, many other things um, on an institutional level that uh, Ruto can weigh in if he has time. I mean, he's also very busy and involved in, in many things. He's the, leading the climate change uh, portfolio at the African Union. But, um, I mean, there's a list of things we think um, could change uh, that would just make the African Union more efficient. Of course, the big elephant in the room is the fact that the African Union is still not self-funded. Uh, member states are not all paying their dues. 
um, the African Union still relies very heavily on the EU and others for all its programs. Peacekeeping, as we said, we're now hopefully going to get UNSS contributions for some of the peacekeeping uh, initiatives and peace missions. But that remains really a big, big issue for the African Union that it needs to be self-funded or majority self-funded. Otherwise, it can never really be effective because uh, those people who are funding the African Union determine uh, or often do determine what kind of programs the African Union engages in. It's, it's, it doesn't have that strategic independence, I would say. So the other major looming succession for the African Union is replacing Moussa Faki as chair of the commission at the next summit a year from now. Uh, Before we get into questions of his replacement and about his lame duck status, so to speak, I'm just curious. We hear from many disgruntled officials in Africa all the time who feel like Faki has not led, I suppose to put it bluntly, on many crises on the continent where they hope the AU would step up. And then you have this complaint from him uh, that he's essentially not empowered to do so. So, so. so how do you, as an expert on the AU who understands the internal processes, how do you adjudicate those competing claims, competing narratives? Yes, I mean, it is it is quite complex. But I had a conversation, an interesting conversation here the other day during the summit with one very, very experienced high official who's also gone through, you know, all the ranks, um, the AU and the UN. And she was telling me definitely um, something that the new AU commission chairperson should have is the support of a critical mass of member states. So Musa Faki Mahamat comes from Chad. Uh, he was a former foreign Initially, he had the support of his country. Um, seems no longer the case. You know, there was unconstitutional change of government, etc. in Chad. So ideally, um, if you are now the commission chairperson, okay, you don't have many powers. As I said, you can't appoint your commissioners. But if you have your head of state behind you and you have that head of state lobbying for the things that you are trying to do, then it will be much easier for you. And hopefully that is something that going forward, you know, for um, heads of state, when they appoint or when they decide to support a commission chairperson, continue with that support. So that if you know, you know, you're going into a meeting and you want the African Union to lead on the crisis in Sudan, um, that you have your member states behind you. Obviously, it depends on what issue we're talking about. It depends on um, experience, leadership. There's a long list of things that, um, you know, you could cite um, on why one commission chairperson is better than another or is seen to have been more effective than another. And I mean, Musafaki's um, predecessor and Kosazanat Lamini Zuma was also criticized for many, many things. She did a lot of institutional uh, um, changes in, in the African Union, I think, but she definitely wasn't very outspoken on any of the crises and conflicts. She didn't travel to hotspots on the continent or make statements. That's one of the things that people were happy that Musafaki did when he came in. So, you know, you almost can't win. But um, I think the idea of having 
weight behind you, or at least your region supporting you, um, that would really help a lot um, to to drive certain things forward. You, you can see how this gets complicated when the UN Security Council now by default, you know, mostly defers to the AU. Um, and then it's the job of the chair of the AU commission often to lead on that, but then he himself feels disempowered. And it, it's almost as if the whole... Uh, architecture breaks down, which which we've actually seen in a few cases. Just to wrap up, uh, so, so what is the process for electing Faki's replacement? And, you know, who are the leading candidates? And, and what should we be watching for this this next year? Yes, the deadline for countries to submit names uh, is in May, so uh, very soon. And lots of names are now being mentioned. It is East Africa's turn um, according to new changes that came in 2018 of regional rotation, now there's still a discussion whether the position of chairperson shouldn't be thrown open, you know, that we can get them best people no matter what region they come from. But um, for now, there's a sort of a consensus that it's East Africa's turn. So there have been many names thrown about you know, um, um, former former <laughs> heads of state, um, former and current opposition leaders. I don't know if you want me to name names, Alan, but um, you know. So, so it is it it is now under discussion, um, and it will really depend on how those individuals and their presidents can then lobby others across the continent. Uh, it's a very tricky process. I mean, in 2016, in July, there were a list of names of uh, candidates for the job that Musa Fakina has. Then a number of heavyweight former presidents and so on weighed in on this process and said, no, you know, these candidates don't uh, aren't acceptable. We'll throw it all open again. There was a decision made the UN General Assembly in uh, in September of that year, uh, Musa Faki suddenly appeared on the list and in February was elected chairperson of African Union Commission. He had a number of heavyweight African states uh, supporting him. And it was almost a mystery to observe as how this happened. He was re-elected. Um, so, you know, we don't know uh, who the powers are behind this process really because you do have, um, f- as I said, former heads of state and, and others who who have a lot of influence on, on the process. But hopefully when we have the list of candidates uh, after May, then there will be a transparent process where these candidates can lobby, where they can have public um, debates, which was the case in uh, 2016, 27, you know, 2017, when Musafaki was elected. So, um, you know, hopefully it will be a really transparent process. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see the best candidate uh, emerging. But um, yeah, um, we'll keep tabs on that. That's going to unfortunately, um, take a lot of energy um, of everybody concerned at the AU, who's going to be the new chair, who's going to be the new deputy, and then the six commissioners will all also uh, be elected in February next year. And I suppose, uh, just to say out loud what, what we hear a lot, 
expectations should be lower, unfortunately, um, for the AU with a with a lame duck chair this year. So, I mean, unfortunately, as I said, Mauritania really isn't a, a country with a big institutional capacity to to weigh in on this crisis. But as we saw at the summit, other leaders can emerge. The Angolan president, uh, you know, has taken upon him this mediation in the DRC. Others can say, look, the crisis is so dire, we need to step up. There's any, um, you know, many of them have got mandates to to do this. Um, and so if we have a chair that is weak, others really, the more powerful states should step in and help the African Union, you know, with all the things on its plate. And, and then finally, Liesl, a, a broader question to close this out. Among the crowd who watches the African Union closely, there has been, I think, fair to say, a lot of hand-wringing lately. Yes, the AU is taking on a bigger role on the global stage for the continent, but on addressing conflicts on the continent, yes, everyone understands issues of capacity, funding, constraints as a multilateral body, uh, but there is a sense of backsliding. Maybe it's just because I and this podcast focus on the Horn of Africa in particular. Um, but does any of this noise rise to the heads of state level? Do the heads of state express any concern about the direction of the African Union as an institution? No, they don't. The leaders themselves come here, you know, once or twice a year. They have their meetings. Um, they use it as a platform they, uh, you know, use the AU's sort of convening power in Addis and um, handle, go to meetings and handle the issues that they feel are priority. But obviously, the ministers who come here more often in their meetings, the ambassadors certainly are very concerned about the impact of the African Union and all these problems that you and I have been discussing. Um, the AU was created in 2002 on the back of a consensus amongst heavyweight um, African states that uh, we need a more effective AU. And you really did see it grow. I mean, uh, the AU of 2002, 2004, five is definitely not the AU of today. Um, much more capacity, much more energy and younger people and um, you know, uh, there, there, there really is more capacity within the African Union and it's developed all these um, structures. But it seems to stagnate um, because we don't have a new sense of pan-Africanism. Um, Musafaki is the chair of the African Union Commission, but he is not a head of state. He said it very clearly. You know, where is the African solidarity? Where is pan-Africanism? There is the threat of terrorism. The other, the uh, the countries are not helping uh, those who are far away to fight these crises. People are, you know, countries are looking inward. They are just protecting their own interests, or you know, getting involved in their neighbours. So what you need is is a, a greater sense of solidarity. Now, we have the new dynamic of the global South um, being really a force to be reckoned with. And um, there's that energy and enthusiasm around that, I would say, uh, that the African continent is part of um, a change, in a historic change, and is on the right side of history when it comes to things like, you know, uh, fighting for the people in Gaza and and so on, um, but 
the African Union as an institution, um, is it going to be able to leverage that new historic um, coming together of the global south? I'm not sure. It will really, really have to get strong leadership. Maybe next year we can see, um, you know, leaders using the African Union uh, to to really speak on behalf of the African continent to solve conflicts. But um, it will it will have to be much, much more efficient. Um, and uh, because otherwise uh, it just won't be able to do that. And, and we have the Africa as being a playing field for so many other um, powerful states around the world that are seeing, you know, vying for Africa's support, for its strategic minerals, for its natural resources, giving military aid, um, and and the African Union, you know, will will need to do much more uh, to to represent to to create a sense of unity amongst African uh, member states. I think. Thank you, Liesl, very much for coming on. I know it's been a very busy week. Um, and thank you to listeners for sitting through what's probably one of our nerdiest <laughs> episodes that we do uh, during the year. Um, so thank you, Liesl. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. Once again, thanks for listening. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group and is produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 